and welcome to the Email Deliverability Unfiltered Video and Podcast Series, Episode 7. I am Brian, Marketing Manager here at Kickbox, returning to the series, joined by my colleague, Lauren Meyer, our VP of Industry Relations and our local deliverability expert. Today, uh, we thought it'd be fun to uh, change things up a little bit and dispel some common deliverability myths. Deliverability can be one of those subjects that is um, kind of complex and it takes a little while to, to fully understand. It's always changing, but uh, one of the ways to, um, to really understand it better is to know the common misconceptions to avoid and just to kind of know how to think about deliverability, right? Um, we are, uh, you know, especially those of us that are in the email geeks community, we know that, that there's a lot of, uh, you know, subjects that are brought up, a lot of misconceptions. Um, if you're just following along with those kinds of conversations. So Lauren and I are going to dispel some of the, the common myths, beat up on them a little bit, and um, you know, hopefully help give everybody a better understanding of how to think about um, your, your deliverability and, uh, and really just your email program in general, right? Because that, that's really what we're talking about. So um, I'm going to go ahead and jump into it. We'll start off by talking about uh, the more broad um, general email myths. And the first one that we hear a lot is that uh, email is dead, right? Or, um, or at least that email is, it's outdated and it's, it's on the way out, you know, just, to, just in any moment, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna get kicked off the internet, right? Or, or it's gonna become uh, irrelevant. Um, you know, Lauren, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think um, the the TLDR for this is that email is not dead. It is still alive and thriving. In fact, um, you know, at this point, I think there are, are more than 3.9 billion email users in the world today. And that just continues to grow year over year. Um, and, and at this point, really, like the email address has become sort of like a form of, of digital identity. It's not just used to receive emails from your friends, your family, your colleagues. It's also used to gain access to other services, right? Like your social media accounts, um, any paid subscriptions or user accounts that you might have. And it's the go-to method for forgotten passwords as well, right? Um, you know, there's social networks, messaging platforms, and even I think that that re-envisioned uh, type of email service that was released just last year, um, Hey, if you guys haven't heard of it, by Basecamp. Um, you know, they've all been trying to to replace email as that that number one service, and they just really haven't done it. You know, I would say. Perhaps Slack actually came the closest so far in the recent years. Um, but you know, even just this week, Slack had a big outage. And you know what people did when they couldn't Slack me? Um, they sent me an email, right? So it still is that backup, even if you're using you know, something else as, as your standard way to communicate with colleagues. Uh, you know, we talk often about the fact that email has an average return on investment of about 42 to one, right? So um, that typically is about four to 10 times higher than any other digital marketing channel, right? Um, but email is also great because, you know, it's searchable, it's storable, it's indexable. You can keep things, you can rely, you know, reply to, to things from years ago. You can check on that receipt from, from three years ago that you're looking for to, to find something out, right? Um, email is also great because it's a push channel, right? If you think about the fact that with social media, um, you kind of have to have somebody who's online when you're posting so they can kind of catch what you're saying. Um, or when they're trying to come to your website, you have to wait for them to to come find you. Whereas with email, it really allows you to engage with your audience on their time, right? That email will just kind of sit in their inbox until they're ready to go find it and read it and then kind of figure out what to do with it. So I think for all these reasons, um, email is, is so great. It's also open source. So unlike those social networks where your followers, followers are, are ultimately 
you know, users of another platform, right? Those people can disappear if that service shuts down, like let's say MySpace did years ago, um, you know, or if they just decide to block your account due to some activity, all of a sudden those, those followers that you have are gone. Whereas with an email address, assuming that person hasn't opted out, you can kind of contact them sort of, you know, forever or until they move to a different email address. So lots of capabilities. Um, email is also personalizable, right? Um, I'm not just talking about your ability to, to personalize the content that you send as a marketer, but even as a recipient, right? You have the ability to, to personalize your email experience down to um, the types of emails that you're, you're signing up for, whether those emails come to your inbox or a folder or to, you know, your promotions tab, for example. Um, and you can also block senders if you no longer want to hear from them. So there's lots of different options options. Um, but ultimately, email is is definitely here to to stay. I don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it can evolve. And um, but we've heard this so many times, you know, really, if you've been in marketing for, for any time, of course, mm -hmm. you know, hear that the, there's a next thing that's going to take it over. And so far, it's really proven to be a strong ally uh, for marketers and a very effective channel. So oh, for sure, digging into to general email a, a bit more and well, a little bit more into deliverability now. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we hear a lot uh, as far as measuring inbox placement or kind of you know, gauging where you are with your deliverability is this coveted sender score. Hey, mm, yeah. if I got a high sender score, uh, I should definitely land in, in the inbox. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, honestly, I mean, sender scores are, are, are and other types of, you know, let's say like deliverability ratings that, that might be provided by an ESP that you're using or a third party tool that you have, right? There's lots of different score, scores that are out there. And these are great if you have no idea how you're doing, right? If you don't know, am I good? Am I bad? Am I somewhere in between? That's awesome. But I think that the, the trick here is that marketers really don't stop to kind of understand how those scores have been calculated and how much relevance they actually have on their future deliverability, right? Because ultimately, having a high sender score does not guarantee that you're going to go to the inbox because it doesn't actually have you know, a direct impact on deliverability, right? It's not like Gmail is looking up the sender score and saying, oh, it's a 99. Cool. Go it, you know, send it to the inbox. Um, you know, ultimately, it, it really comes down to, to the fact that those sender scores are predictive, right? They're based on historical data. Um, they're only meant to give marketers that very high level idea of, of sort of how their deliverability should be faring. Um, but you know, ultimately, they're not gonna determine the future ability of your emails to hit the inbox. So really that, that the key to using these, these deliverability scores properly is to monitor your results over time, right? If you see that your inbox placement or your sender score is very high um, and all of a sudden it kind of just drops off a cliff a little bit, that's where you really wanna kind of focus on what's going on versus if you see kind of it's just slowly trending downwards over time, maybe that means that there's a more meaningful change that you need to make to your program to really kind of um, adjust that curve. So really, you know, use that, use those trends, but also use this in conjunction with your other engagement metrics, like your opens, your clicks, your conversions, so that you have a full picture of, of kind of what's what's going on with that deliverability score that you've got. Yes, it, I think it's a good starting point, right? But sure. But really, there's a larger picture to this, and that's what mm -hmm. a lot of uh, uh, measuring deliverability is: is collecting. All these data points and seeing things from a from a bigger picture, we have uh, uh, actually episode three of this series is all about measuring deliverability. Uh, that's a great episode with uh, Lauren and uh, Alyssa from ConvertKit, and uh, highly recommend going and, and checking out that one to uh, get a more in depth analysis. 
Yeah, and Brian, actually, I think I want to also call back to um, a webinar that we did with uh, Socket Labs a couple of months ago, and that one also is about understanding your sender reputation, and we dig pretty deep into what the sender score is, kind of how that works, um, and more importantly, also, send, you know, Socket Labs actually has their own kind of sender, I think they call it like the sender index or something like that, and essentially that is also like another kind of sender score that's meant to just give you a basic idea of how you're going, but they talk about the flaws of that score and how it should properly be used, so I think that's a good one for people to check out as well. Yeah, that's a great example. You know, it's a great example of somebody having a score, but it's their own score. They're still saying, hey, these would be. Yeah, it's not perfect. It's just an indicator. Yeah. So um, let's jump into the next myth, which is about the promotions tab. I've been guilty of thinking this, uh, you know, when I've had my emails go to the promotions tab is right. why am I being punished? You know, what, what, uh, what do I have to do to get to the primary inbox? For those of you who don't know, mm -hmm. uh, Gmail has had a tab view since 2013, and it's evolved. Uh, it, it's, you know, different tabs. You've got the primary inbox. There's also the promotions tab. There's a social tab. Um, there's, a, you know, there's an updates tab. Um, and other mailbox providers, uh, mainly Microsoft Outlook, uh, has a tab view as well. Um, but the myth is that the promotions tab is kind of on the same level as the spam folder or, you know, it's some sort of uh, punishment or that it's not optimal or that it'll uh, adversely affect your email programs. What do you think about that, Lauren? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it, it makes sense that people are a little bit nervous about this change because it's a meaningful change, right? Back when this happened in 2013, people kind of lost their minds. They, they really, you know, as a marketer, you want your message to be sitting directly in front of your recipient as soon as they log into their account, right? Um, so it's a little bit weird to say now it's kind of organized into this promotions tab and it's sitting only with other promotional emails. But really Gmail's goal here is to help organize the inbox for their users and kind of just make that experience easier for them, better for them. And so you really need to embrace it because, you know, Gmail's filters do work in real time. Um, any success that you have is really not going to last because those filters are just going to change as soon as you figure something out. Uh, but I think more importantly is just to focus on the sentiment of that promotions tab, right? Because if you receive a message, imagine if you're, if you're sitting in your primary inbox um, and you're looking at an email from your mom and you close out of that email, and then um, you've got a promotion that's sitting there from a retail brand saying that they're advertising a sale, and then you're jumping to a, a message from your sister. I don't know. Um, those that's, a, that's kind of a weird experience, right? And so what we see is that, yes, maybe you will see a higher open rate when messages are landing in your primary tab. We also see that conversions are lower and spam complaints are elevated because people are basically just like, what is this doing? I don't want to see this right now. I'm not in a place to be looking at sales mails. This is not what I want, right? Um, whereas when they go to that promotions tab, they're in the right frame of mind to be a consumer, right? To, to sort of be pitched to by brands, to look at different advertisements, to see who's running a sale, um, to see who has interesting subject lines that they want to click into. So in those cases, we tend to see that the conversion rates are actually much higher when you're going to that promotions tab. Um, and also those, those negative reactions from users like those user complaints and unsubscribes tend to be lower as well. So a lot of really good things happening in that sense. But I think also people kind of don't really realize um, how low the adoption rates of the tabs you really are. Um, so a couple of stats that, that I want to share that are actually, uh, we have the resources linked, I think, within the Gmail tabs uh, blog post that we did uh, very recently on our blog. So go check that out. But essentially, what we're looking at here is that 55% of emails are read on devices that don't offer a tab 
tabs view. So figure if you're using, um, you know, the native uh, mail app on your iPhone, if you're using basically anything other than the Gmail app or a Gmail web browser, you don't even see the option to have a tabs view at all. At the same time, only 20% of Gmail users actually have enabled that tabs view. So even for the people that have access to it that could use it, only 20% of them are actually doing, which is very, very low. It's mostly just sort of email nerds like me kind of people, right? Me and you. Um, lastly, I think, you know, realize that, you know, about 50% of tabs users are reading that promotions tab daily. And when they're there, that's when they're in that right mindset to, to really make a purchase. So this is what's going to lead to those higher conversion rates. But really, truly, you know, this is not a big deal. I often hear people kind of talking about not wanting to adopt a new technology because it's not really widespread enough, right? It's only supported by one or two mailbox providers or something like that. This is sort of along the same lines. Like don't chase your tail forever trying to, to figure out this Gmail promotions tab thing because it really is affecting like a small subset of the users that are on your list. So really, instead of trying that to, to, to game that system because Gmail is very good at that, that game, um, you know, really just pour your, your energy into lasting efforts like you know, building a quality list and providing real value to your subscribers, following your data points to understand what they like, what they don't like, and, and really kind of lean into that. Find a way to make them come find you as opposed to just trying to, to land in a place where they happen to kind of stumble across, across your mail. Yes, yeah, all really important things to keep in mind. Those statistics on the adoption of tabs, uh, you know, when when, uh, when I heard them from you, I just uh, my mind was absolutely blown. But it's really encouraging for us as uh, as marketers, um, and you know, it, it's really important to uh, to keep all those things in mind uh, when somebody, you know, maybe your your boss or somebody in your organization is is, is asking why did this land in the promotions tab? Um, the promotions tab is the inbox, so. Um, the, uh, let's go ahead and move on to, uh, to email myths that have to do with your ESP or your email service provider. Do it. Yeah. Sending platform. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of folks think that, you know, if they're having some, some sort of deliverability issue that their ESP is uh, somehow associated with that or somehow to blame. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you've been on that ESP side yourself. So, you know, what's your take on that? Yeah, and I think you know this is this is tricky because um, you know if you're a customer of an ESP and the ESP is the one who's telling you, yeah, it's not our fault, it's your fault. That's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow, right? Like it's like, yeah, of course you're going to say that because you don't want to work harder or you don't want to lose me as a customer. So I get that there's a little bit of mistrust there, um, you know. But but really, ESPs do a very good job of protecting their platform from malicious users, of trying to optimize their own deliverability, their own um, anti-abuse efforts, things like that. So they're really trying to optimize their deliverability, but more importantly, um, you know, at this point in, in, you know, in technology, we are well beyond um, a mailbox provider not being able to tell the difference between one sender and, an, and another, right? We have IP reputation, but at this point, a lot of, of mailbox providers are adopting domain reputation and sender address reputation as well. And there's all these other factors in deliverability too, right? So there's all these things coming together. Um, and, and, you know, so those, those days where you could magically just kind of change IPs or change ESPs and you send from a new place and, and then all of a sudden your, your reputation resets, it doesn't really work like that, right? Because the tricky part is I think, you know, since the domain reputation is tied to your sending domain, which usually is also tied to your company's actual website, it's gonna follow you, right? If you change your IPs, if you change your ESPs and you don't change the practices that kind of led to that deliverability issue in the first place, they're gonna follow you, right? It's just like, if you're kind of like that, that naughty kid in school, you get suspended, you move on to a new school, you have the opportunity 
to become a better, you know, more behaved child, or you can just repeat the same stuff, get into fights and get suspended again, right? So if you're still behaving those bad behaviors, it's going to follow you. So it's, it's not about just asking for a new IP, a new ESP. Um, it really is just about figuring out what, what it is that's actually driving your deliverability issue and, and digging into that, really figuring out how you can improve that practice or solve that issue. Um, I think we also kind of want to just call out the fact that, you know, when you're moving to um, a new ESP, even if you're, you're switching IPs, that requires an IP warmup, which can take, you know, days, weeks, depending on the volume that you're building to. And there can be deliverability issues along the way, but especially if you're switching ESPs, you know, you're moving all of the assets, you're, you're, you're negotiating a new contract, you're getting used to a new platform that you maybe don't understand yet, or you're not, you know, familiar with. Um, there's a lot of, of kind of downtime, a lot of sort of wasted time that needs to be spent planning that, coordinating that, that move. So I think it's really just, you know, if, if you're looking to, to switch vendors because you're missing some features or you have a poor customer experience, um, you know, maybe their, their customer service isn't what you want it to be. That's great. Go for that, right? There's a thing called an RFP, which is like a request, request for proposal process where you can kind of get all of the different stakeholders involved and say, okay, what are our needs? What are our goals? What are our pain points? What are we trying to solve? What are we trying to do with email? And let's find the right provider. You can do that. That's awesome. Um, but if you're looking to kind of just, you know, sort of, um, you know, attempt to, to sort of jump ship from your ESP and move on to a new place and start fresh, that is becoming harder and harder by the day, really. So you've got to incorporate those best practices, um, focus on sending mail that people love and focus on fixing your issues, right? You can't just kind of, you know, cover your eyes and say, oh, it's going to go away one day because it, it really, it, it's probably not. So um, not really your ESP's fault. Yes, sometimes you can, you know, it can be partially something that they can help you with, but, but really you need to own your, your own sender reputation at this point. Yeah, if uh, if y'all haven't noticed, there's a kind of a theme here, right? We're responsible, right? We we as as marketers are responsible for uh, for the, the the destiny of our email program right. and uh, and for our deliverability. It's really up to us to keep tabs on those things and to uh, maintain a good relationship with our ESP. Um, and in turn, they're gonna uh, they're gonna help us out as well, uh, getting to the inbox, right? All. Um, maintaining those relationships, right? With the, you know, between you, your, your ESP, the mailbox provider, like Gmail uh, and, and your subscriber, right? Gotta keep everybody happy. So, so another category of myths that we wanted to debunk is about data collection. Uh, this is really important because it has a lot to do with, uh, with um, how your deliverability is going to be in your level of inbox placement. Most issues with inbox placements are tied somehow to data collection or you know you could trace it back to uh the the um the quality of the data that was collected so uh, the first one is about double opt-in people debate about this all the time and of course it depends uh, from business to business um you know and, and for, for everybody's situation uh, whether or not double opt-in is right for them but there's still some misconceptions about what double opt-in can do, particularly what it can protect you from. Some people say that, uh, you know, if you, if you have your subscribers double opt-in, then that'll stop them from, uh, from complaining or hitting marked as spam. What do you say to that, Lauren? 
Yeah. And, you know, I will say, I think um, you're on the right track to them not marking as spam because your process to start is very solid, right? Because with a double opt-in, um, the person actually has to sign up on your website or wherever else your sign-up form is. Then they need to receive an email from you and then click on a confirmation link within that email that says, yes, I want to join the list. I want to hear from you in the future, right? So this, this process really does give people the ability to have greater confidence in the quality of their database because it shows interest from the recipients right off the bat. So the idea is hopefully those, those recipients will stay engaged and continue to, to read the emails that you're sending. But you really, you need to focus not just on that list collection process, but everything after as well. Because if you get them to sign up, um, but then you send them content that's really not engaging, or maybe it doesn't align with the expectations that you set at that sign up point, right? So um, if it's not the kind of content that they were expecting, if the frequency is a little bit off, they still have the ability to mark that message as spam, just like somebody that you sent, uh, you know, an unsolicited message to, or somebody that you sent something that was really wrong, right? So it really is is important not just to um, to have that 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 positive sign up process and use that double opt in, but to also follow the engagement metrics, make sure that every step of that process is 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 done as well as possible, right? Send engaging emails, get them to open and click those. Make sure the experience that they have on your website or when they click through that link is just as good as the email experience that they're having. So I think it really is. Um, you know, it, it's not just down to having the, the good list collection. You got to do everything, right? Yes, exactly. So yes, maybe double opt-in. Yes, collect good data. And yes, send good content. Uh, Lauren, you spoke with Kath Pay in the, um, in the, in the latest episode about uh, the customer experience and applying, you know, this concept of helpful marketing um, in uh, you know in a holistic approach right looking at your your email program in a holistic way um, and helping your customers out creating a strong customer experience um, you know so I'll go ahead and, and, and plug that uh, piece of content as well I highly encourage folks who have not listened to that one to do so um, staying on data collection um, we as marketers want more leads all the time and we want to help drive more pipeline so uh, sometimes you know, uh, people say you can work with uh, with a data broker, right? Or, you know, purchase a list. But the list purchaser said, or sorry, the, the list seller said, hey, this is from, this is opt-in, you know, this is this is legit. Um, you know, what, what if somebody says that, uh, you know, it's okay to purchase lists if it's from a, a trusted data broker? Yeah, well, I, I would say, first of all, um, just consider that any person who's selling you something is going to tell you that that product is awesome. <laughs> so, um, you know, go check out the deliverability suite from Pickbacks. It's awesome right now. But anyway, um, yeah, the point is, you know, most vendors who are selling you an email list are going to lead with the fact that it is compliant, right? That the personal details that they're giving you from someone that you don't know and that doesn't know you are compliant. They're going to probably start with can spam, which is a law in the U.S. that, um, you know, doesn't require an opt-in. From, from recipients, it actually just, just requires that you give them a chance to opt out after, right? can spam, right? That's what it stands for. can spam, right. You can spam, <laughs> as, as Skylar told us in, in our episode on permission, right? Um, you know, so I think that's where a lot of these, these, these vendors that you're talking about who are claiming to have opt-in data are taking that step further to say, yes, you know, when somebody came through, they've opted in to receive this. We're not spamming people. We're not sending unsolicited messages. They've asked for them. But I think the key here is, you know, they, they've asked to hear from someone else, right? That that proof or that opt-in may have been something that was hidden within a privacy policy or a terms of service or use or something like that. It does not mean that the recipient that you're now about to email out of the blue is expecting to hear 
from you, right? So because of this, there's just a whole boatload of issues that you might um, start to, start to, to um, encounter that are going to risk your deliverability, right? So here we're talking about, you know, high user complaints because those people haven't heard of your brand before, or they're just not expecting to hear from you because they didn't really opt into your program, your email program. Um, you might have hard bounces. It depends on the list vendor. They're going to claim that all that data is fresh and relevant and opt in. Um, a company that I worked for, an email company that I worked for in the past bought a list for our sales team. And the claimed opt-in data had about a 35% hard bounce rate in one of the countries. And I think it was about a 22, 23% hard bounce rate in another. So like really, really high hard bounces, even though you're paying for, for that information. Um, you might also be hitting spam traps. You're gonna get block listed by different places. Um, you might start going to the spam folder because you've got low good engagement coming from your users. Um, you might have blocked emails and you might even actually have your service terminated by your ESP because they find out that you're using a purchase list. You know, honestly, um, these companies are tracking lists, right? They, they understand, um, what it looks like when you've got a list that, that just has a lot of a lot of abuse issues or you know things like that. So it's really important um, to you know again to, to grow your list the right way, um, just to make sure that that you really are um, not just doing what's legal. I think that's that's the big thing is you know don't set your bar at legality because that's not what's going to get you to the inbox. Right, mailbox providers don't really care about what's legal when they're saying does this go to the inbox or does it go to the spam folder. They're looking at the recipients reaction to that mail. And if that reaction is not very positive, it's not going to keep going to the inbox. So you're better to just build your list the right way, grow it with people that are super engaged with the brand and the emails that you're sending. Um, and then just, you know, incrementally grow it from there. Yes. It's important to keep in mind that, uh, that you are helping your, your own marketing down the line by not purchasing lists. Yes. Understand. I'm, I've been there. I've been taught this from early on, purchase a list if you want to get there fast, or if you just, if you need to meet your goals, just purchase a list. Um, but it's, it's not worth it in the end. Yeah. And I will say, you know, maybe, maybe back in, in the, in the, the, the good old heydays of email where you could just send, you could literally blast it and just get paid per click. Like affiliate marketing was, was rampant back when I first started an email in, I guess it was, you know, 2006, I think, um, you know, and at that point you were just, yeah, if you're getting paid per click, it makes sense to have to send to as many people as possible and to get as many of them to click through as possible. But in this day and age, um, you know, you need to do more to, to continue hitting the inbox. But more importantly, yeah, your, your subscribers are not going to stay on your list and continue to drive value for your business if, if they don't like the content that you're sending. So it really is, it is important to understand who's signing up and, and why they're there and, and what value they're looking to get out of you. Absolutely. Speaking of that, um, uh, and, and data quality. Let's mm -hmm. talk about verification myths. All so, right. Yeah. Kickbox, uh, uh, you know, is is familiar with this, and um, so we get to uh, to vent our frustrations here and, and, and talk about really the ones that we hear uh, a lot. But really, it comes down to people thinking that verification can do something that it doesn't necessarily do, and honestly just kind of some sketchy stuff, but really it's, it, it can really be a, uh, a legitimate tool um, and a really helpful tool for opt-in, you know, if you're working with a database of opt-in subscribers. Um, but, you know, one thing that we, that we hear all the time is that, you know, hey, can you fix my list? Mm -hmm. Yes, we do hear this all the time. Um, I think that the biggest things that people are looking to do is really just, yeah, they say, I, you know, either I don't, I don't have any idea how this list was built. You know, maybe I'm new to the organization or maybe I went through an acquisition. And so we've got, 
you know, the, 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 the merged company's email list, but we don't have any idea of, of kind of how that was maintained or built um, <clears throat> places like that. It can be really helpful um, to, to use email verification. Um, I think Brian, you nailed on a good point, which was the opt-in, right? That, that actual opt-in where someone's coming through your list. I think um, the real-time verification method that we offer and that a lot of companies offer um, can help marketers not just avoid those hard bounces, but also collect a valid email address at the point when someone is signing up, right? So you're, you're avoiding misconnections with potential new customers, which is awesome. So I think there's there's scenarios like that. I think a re-engagement campaign would also be a good one. So if it's people that you haven't contacted in a while and you're a little bit worried that some of those addresses might've you know, closed or, or now they're gonna hard bounce, you can kind of remove some of that bad data. But you know, we really, um, we are not able to create permission if you didn't actually get an opt-in directly from your users. Um, we're also not able to, to remove spam traps from lists. Okay, and I, I, will, I should clarify, we can help you remove some of the spam traps on your list, right? We know about them. Um, it's it's quite easy actually to, to find some of the spam traps out there. I think there's people who have kind of stumbled upon a lot of them as they're doing deliverability um, you know, investigations. I've done that as well. Um, but I think this, this is a, a big one in our industry is the idea that a list verification or validation company can remove all of the spam traps on your list and essentially say, it's okay for you to have those bad collection practices or those bad management practices because we're gonna clean it up and we're gonna make it better. It really is um, you know, about building your list the right way because once you've got spam traps on your list, um, we're not gonna know every single one of those, right? There's there's very credible companies like Spam House that are creating these, these traps all the time. There's lots and lots of other third-party anti-abuse companies that are also creating these traps. So for you to know every single one and to detect those, um, especially when those, those companies, the whole point of them is to never disclose them. Like again, sure, you can find some every time, you know, once in a while, but you can't know every spam trap that's out there. So if there's ever a company that's kind of claiming that they're gonna be able to remove all of those traps, we really, what you're doing is kind of just paying a whole lot of money to put like a, a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, I guess I could say, right? Uh, because what's gonna happen is, yes, you're gonna remove all of those traps. You're gonna have a clean list, maybe for a little, a cleaner list, let's say for a little while, but the the problematic practice that's, that's adding those traps to your list is still prevalent, right? So in that case, you're gonna to continue to hit more and more traps. And ultimately at one point, you're going to hit one that, that really matters like moment spam house or someone. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's really important that um, you vet your email verification services very closely. And if they're claiming that they're gonna remove all of your spam traps or God forbid, if they are claiming that they can guarantee inbox placement, which is actually something that I've heard one of our competitors say recently, um, it, it, it's simply not the case. It's not true. I, I've worked with customers who were listed by spam house um, went through some process to, to do an email verification, um, came back. I think one of them, you know, I can remember removed, you know, 30,000 spam traps from their list. They felt great. They spent a bunch of money. Um, they hit send and, and, and very, very shortly after they were relisted by spam house because they didn't get the ones that actually mattered. So I think it's just, you know, if you're working with, with a company who's giving you those spam traps, um, please resist the urge to just kind of remove those traps from your list and, and kind of go back to business as usual, because that's not going to be good enough. Again, you're going to start hitting more and more traps, um, different traps, and you're going to end up same in the back spot. So it really, it's got to be about doing right by your email program, growing your list the right way, fixing those holes, right? If you find a, a, like a hole where, where a bunch of spam traps are leaking in, whether that's list collection, or if it's just because you're not focusing on list management and you've got a lot of like, you know, recycled traps in your list, whatever the case is, um, plug up that hole where they're appearing instead of just trying to spend money to sort of clean up, clean it up because it really doesn't work. Yeah, the analogy you used of, of we say Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Yeah, yeah. pretty good analogy, uh, but it, it's important to keep in mind that 
email verification or validation can be part of a of a um, a, a larger um, you know list hygiene or data hygiene uh, you know best practice. So um, we discussed a bunch of myths as we as we conclude. Um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to to get your wisdom, Lauren, on how to think about deliverability myths and how to uh, and, and how to spot them in the future. We, you know, we listed some that we just picked ourselves, but really, you know, the whole uh, teach a person to fish and, and, and they'll eat forever kind of, uh, kind of mindset. Um, how do we spot these kinds of myths as we're moving forward and we're seeing all of the, you know, th this potentially conflicting information on the internet? It's a great question. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it is challenging because, you know, we have seen, you know, really credible companies who come out and sometimes have advice that is um, a little bit misguided or it's maybe not backed by research or maybe it's an article that was written by, you know, somebody who's new to, to the marketing team and, and a little bit more junior. And so they're kind of maybe copying someone else's post and not copying, but being inspired by someone else's post that's maybe not backed by data or things like that. Right. So there, it, it is challenging. So I think um, some of the tips I guess I would, I would share are to really focus on like expanding your network. And this is just so easy in this day and age because we've got, you know, Slack groups and we've got, you know, all these different social media accounts and, and, and industry groups and stuff. So um, really, you know, just surround yourself with industry colleagues that you trust, right? Those people that have a track record for delivering either solid advice or support or expertise, like you know that they they know what they're talking about, right? Um, I think there's there's several industry groups that, that we can kind of call out for people to, to investigate or try to join. Um, some of these are the Email Geeks Slack group. I think it's you know at least like 10,000 members strong now, if not more. Um, there's the Women of Email Facebook group, and they've also got a website. Um, I'm also part of, of Cordial's Better Messengers Slack group, so that's another one where they're they're focusing on trying to strive for better messaging. Um, and all of these communities, while they do require an application, they're free to join, and then you can kind of just start kind of asking questions and talking to, to the different experts and people that are in that group. Um, there's also a couple of industry groups that, that are available with a paid membership. And so these are, um, I would say MOG. And so MOG stands for, um, you know, what is it? Messaging, Malware and Mobile Anti-Abuse. It's a working group. Um, so all about anti-abuse. We've got the Only Influencers group as well as the Email Experience Council. So lots of different places where you're able to kind of join special interest groups or committees um, where you can learn and you can share your knowledge with others that are in the group or even just with the community at large. So I would definitely you know, suggest that you, you do that. But build your own network if you can't find one that you like. Um, do whatever you can to just just really talk to people in our industry. Um, I would say also review that, that content with a suspicious eye. Again, um, even, even good companies, reputable companies have, have put out some stuff that's, that's maybe a little bit eyebrow raising. So, you know, have you heard of the author of, of that before? Have you heard of the company? Um, are their claims being backed up by data or research or customer feedback or anything like that? Or is it just kind of like this, this claim that sounds really good? So just, you know, really just, just, just consider like, you know, is this something that I need to, to dig a little bit of deeper and, and maybe do my own research? Um, and then see where you go from there. I would say also, you know, just like just never ever stop learning in our industry. Um, you know, I, I feel like we we really there's so many evolving trends. There's new technologies. Um, you also need to be following your own email performance metrics to make sure that your audience and is still kind of enjoying the content that you're sending as you keep pumping it out. Um, you know, so it's just the more you learn, the more you consume, the more that you're reading. 
um, you know, the perspective of lots of different experts on the same topic, the more they're going to be able to kind of spot something that seems a little bit questionable, right? It doesn't mean that all these experts are going to agree, and, and oftentimes they don't. Um, Brian mentioned the, the idea of like double opt-in, right? Um, that's that's one that people fight over. I think people often also figure, you know, how should we be tracking opens? Do opens even matter, right? There's lots of things that people can argue about, but if you read enough, you'll start to see what seems to, to make sense and be backed by data and, and kind of what doesn't. So that is, is something, something I definitely suggest, as well as just ask questions, right? It doesn't matter if you're a member of those groups that I just mentioned, or if you just prefer to engage with people on social media or just to read blogs on your personal time, whatever you wanna do, um, don't be afraid to ask questions, right? Um, there's even veterans that, that we've had on our uh, on some of our episodes and ones that, that are in the industry that have been in the industry for more than 20 years. And they're even consistently learning things and kind of you know saying, hey, you know, I'm, I, I'm questioning something that I thought I knew. It seemed, did, did, did this change or was I wrong about this this whole time? I don't know, right? So it just really like, you know, be humble, um, you know, recognize that there is a lot to learn in this industry and that it keeps changing, right? It's a perpetual learning situation for us. Um, so you need to kind of give yourself the grace to just to, to understand that you don't know everything and you probably never will um, and just be not afraid to ask and to keep, keep learning. So I guess those are my, my top tips for you. And uh, read the kickbox blog. Yeah, do that too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, seriously, because we have uh, input from all industry experts from, you know, all different organizations mm -hmm. and yeah. the industry. So, um, you know, definitely going to, to plug our blog there. But um, Lauren, thank you for, for lending your expertise and, uh, you know, helping to bust some of these uh, big myths. Uh, we went over several, but, uh, you know, in, in the blog post that'll be accompanied um, alongside this, uh, you know, we're going to go over even more, right? Uh, somewhere yep. in the 2021 of them. Um, so quite a few. So, uh, you know, feel free to dig into that. We are also now live on podcast platforms. So I'm really excited about that. So you can consume this series um, anywhere, right? In any way you want to. Now we got a video blog and, uh, uh, and now on podcast. So for now it's on Anchor and Stitcher. Um, and very soon we will be on Spotify and iTunes. So uh, be sure to uh, bookmark us on those platforms, um, you know, so you can listen to us in the car or however you'd like to. Um, there are uh, six episodes uh, previous to this one with some great information. Uh, so, uh, you know, we encourage you all to bookmark that and, uh, and listen to it and stay tuned for more good content. Until next time, take care. Bye, everybody.